Welcome to the first episode of the Adult Reading Rainbow. We are reading the Emerald Tablet, Alchemy for Personal Transformation by Dennis William Hawk. About the author, Dennis William Hawk is an internationally known authority on spiritual and mystical experiences one of the world's few practicing alchemists, he writes and lectures on the stages of personal transformation to a wide variety of audiences, including scientists, business leaders, and Christian and New Age groups. A professional member of the Association for Transpersonal Psychology and the Institute for Noetic Sciences, he is a translator of old alchemy manuscripts and the author of several books dealing with mystical and paranormal experiences, including Haunted Places, the National Directory, and the International Directory of Haunted Places. Introduction. In recent years, Fictional accounts about the rediscovery of ancient spiritual insights have become overnight bestsellers. These stories strike a chord in people weary of a commercialized world in which endless materialistic striving seems to be the highest aspiration. As we approach the new millennium, many of us are fed up eager to move toward a more spiritual culture on earth. But what if there really were an ancient science of soul designed for achieving spiritual perfection in very specific and comprehensible steps and whose only goal was to accelerate the evolution of mankind's spiritual nature? Not only does such a science exist, it is based on a single document whose origin is lost in legends that go back over 10,000 years. Called the Emerald Tablet because it was molded out of a single piece of emerald or green crystal, it carries a powerful message full of hidden meaning and prophetic depth. According to some reports, the wondrous tablet was translated by Alexandrian scholars and actually put on display in Egypt around 330 BCE. One of the most mysterious documents ever put before the eyes of man, the Emerald Tablet has been described as everything from a succinct summary of Neoplatonic philosophy to an extraterrestrial artifact or gift from Atlantis. The text is written in extremely generic terms and is the uncredited inspiration for many of our spiritual and religious traditions. Its most obvious legacy is at least 17 centuries of alchemy, a period in which some of the most creative minds in the world delved into the intertwined mysteries of matter, energy, soul, and spirit. My initiation into the lore of the tablet came while I was still a graduate student at the University of Vienna. In the 17th century, Vienna and nearby Prague served as the European Center for the Study of Alchemy and hundreds of alchemical manuscripts were written there. I spent untold hours paging through those arcane treatises trying to figure out what the alchemists were talking about 
and searching for the meaning of the bizarre drawings that illustrated their ideas. I soon realized that the common source for all the practical and metaphysical work of the alchemists was the Emerald Tablet. My research into the origins of the tablet took me throughout Europe and down a path that led all the way back to ancient Egypt. Along the way, I uncovered previously unknown versions of the Emerald Tablet and made some amazing discoveries, including an encrypted chemical formula within the tablet and evidence of its connection with the Grail legends. Gradually, I became convinced that our mystical and religious visions originate in a hidden reality that the Emerald Tablet not only describes, but shows us how to access. As we enter a new cosmic cycle, that hidden reality is being witnessed by increasing numbers of honest and intelligent people in mystical and paranormal encounters, but which are, in fact, glimpses of another side to reality that modern civilization has rejected and tried to ignore. The Emerald Tablet works on many levels and instructs us in a worldview that encompasses all the different facets of reality, not just our everyday world and the two cultures of science and religious religion that dominate our society, but also the ineffable forces that control our, our psychological, physiological, and spiritual development. I believe, as did the ancients, that the Emerald Tablet is a divinely inspired document that contains an important message, something wonderful for all of mankind. However, the multiple layers of meaning and interpretation built into the tablet make it anything but simple for the uninitiated to work with. The intuitive approach adopted here guides the reader through the tablet's many mysteries until it comes alive, so he or she can directly experience the magic of its principles and apply them successfully. This book is a personal testimony to the power of alchemy as well. Using examples from my own life and from those of other people, both famous and unknown, I have attempted to expose the hidden but constant alchemy of our lives. The material in this book is organized into three parts. The first section is dedicated to a true understanding of the ancient message contained in the Emerald Tablet through examples of persons who, over the ages, have unleashed the tablet's powers. Each part of the document is scrutinized to reveal its complete meaning. Then the entire content of the tablet is envisioned in a single remarkable engraving from the early 17th century. In the second part, the recipe upon which all alchemy is based the Emerald Tablet is revealed and elaborated on with specific techniques on how to apply each step. The goal is for the reader to personally experience the renewed energy and amazing synchronicities unleashed by transmuting the lead of one's innermost being into gold. The final part of this book scrutinizes what the Emerald Tablet tells us about our future and about how we came to be where we are now. We will examine the alchemy of the millennium as well as the meaning of increased sightings of the stone, an emerging pattern being reported throughout the world. What is the Emerald Tablet really? In simplest terms, it is a scientific document that actually works. 
with something we perceive as metaphysical in nature, thus presenting a spiritual technology for the human race. It shows mankind how to consciously work together with the forces of evolution and gives individuals the opportunity to transform themselves outside the inherently imperfect and artificial structures of schools, church, and government. The Emerald Tablet Aid, <clears throat> excuse me, offers each one of us the chance not only to directly participate in the quantum leap in consciousness that can safely lead us into the third millennium, but also to do so as real people, true to ourselves and in accord with the soul of the universe. Part one, understanding the Emerald Tablet. Chapter one, gift from the gods. Over the centuries, many esteemed philosophers have declared that the Emerald Tablet contains the sum of all knowledge and a handful of seekers have reported actually seeing and touching the mysterious gemstone tablet. But few embraced its principles more thoroughly than a 16-year-old boy by the name of Bellinus. From the moment he ran his fingers across the bas-relief lettering on the crystalline object, he recognized the all-encompassing force it contained. Transformed by the truths it revealed, the lonely boy became one of the world's greatest healers and most enlightened men. Born in the year 16 CE in Tiana, Cappadocia, part of what is now Turkey, Bellinus was different from other children from the start. Remarkable for his great beauty and powerful memory, the precocious lad approached life like an empty cup constantly needing to be filled. Though his intense need for absolute truth soon became a burden to his parents and teachers. His father even, even suspected that his son suffered from some acquired malady and took him at an early age to various priests and healers. When the child exhibited his ability to converse on any subject in several different languages, the authorities publicly proclaimed him an incarnation of Proteus, the shape-shifting god of the Greeks. That, of course, was not what his father expected to hear, and although no one could say exactly when it happened, he eventually just stopped talking to his son. The rejected boy started referring to himself as an orphan and took to wandering the streets of Tiana like a beggar desperately seeking a mentor who knew how to reach him. One day, the boy came upon a marble statue set on a gilded column near the edge of town. The monument itself was very old and though the common language was then Aramaic, the writing on the statue was in the original Syrian alphabet. As the boy gazed up at the imposing figure on the pedestal, something in the ancient man's eyes caught his interest. It was as if the man knew everything. On a plaque halfway up the column were the words, Behold, I am Hermes Tresmegistus, he who is threefold in wisdom. I once placed these marvelous signs openly before all eyes, but now I have veiled them by my wisdom so that none should attain them unless he become a sage like myself. Further up, a breastplate declared, 
Let him who would learn and know the secrets of creation and nature inquire beneath my feet. The boy fell to his knees and looked up into the man's proud face. Here stood the tutor he had longed for, someone beyond the folly and exaggeration of the world, someone who knew the higher truths the boy sensed intuitively. The lad's large, dark eyes swelled up with tears and he whispered, teach me, Hermes. The wise old man carved in stone became the father the boy so desperately needed and he spent many evenings conversing with the cold marble as if it was a real person. When Belenus was 14, his frustrated parents interrupted his mystical tutoring and sent him south to Tarsus to pursue more formal studies. But the boy grew restless and calling tar the Tarsians frivolous, moved to Aji in Greece, hoping to find someone acquainted with the secret teachings of Hermes. There, he discovered the writings of Pythagoras, who was said to be directly descended from the great Hermes. At last, Bellinus felt he was making progress. At age 16, he returned to Tiana, drawn by the idea that he was now ready to complete his apprenticeship at the foot of the statue. Bellinus went to the marble god just before sunrise and kneeling before him, beseeched Hermes to share his great truths once and for all. The first rays of sunlight fell on the polished brass breastplate. Let him who would learn and know the secrets of creation and nature inquire beneath my feet. Like a flash of lightning, the boy gasped the cryptic message and felt like a fool for not having seen it earlier. He jumped to his feet and started digging feverishly beneath the massive stone block at the base of the column. By noon, he had uncovered the entrance to an underground chamber. Though, though the sun shone brightly overhead, the cavern was so dark that not a single ray of light penetrated it. The scrawny lad slipped easily through the narrow opening, but once inside, he was enveloped by fierce winds that arose from nowhere and blew in all directions without ceasing. No torch would burn under those conditions, and the pitch blackness prevented him going any further. Disappointment and gnawing chagrin kept Bellinus from sleeping that night. What was in the cave? Did it contain the secrets promised by Hermes, or was it just a natural formation? How would he ever find out what was in there? In the middle of the night, Bellinus returned to the statue and eventually fell asleep. Leaning against the column where he had spent so many hours listening to the teachings of Hermes. His head propped against the cool stone, the boy dreamt of an old man standing next to the opening of the cave. The man looked familiar, but it was not Hermes. Oh, Bellinus, the man called out, rise and enter into this chamber to gain knowledge of the secrets of creation so as to obtain a true representation of nature. I can see nothing in that darkness, replied Bellinus, and the winds that blow there are put out every flame. Bellinus, put your light into a glass vessel, suggested the man. The boy had never seen such a lantern, but he knew at once the idea would work. Who are you that allows me to profit from your favor? Asked the savvy boy. And the man said, I am your own being, perfect and subtle. 
Then Belinus awoke full of joy. He set a torch inside a glass, just as the man had said, and entered the chamber shortly after sunrise the next day. The chaotic wind still blew and nearly knocked him off his feet, but the lantern stayed lit and guided him deep into the rocky cavern. Before long, the winds abated, and he caught sight of a dancing light ahead. The reflection of his own lantern off a shiny object in front of him. As the boy approached, he could hardly believe his eyes. Before him stood a golden throne and, seated in it, the mummified corpse of Hermes wearing the remains of a fine embroidered coat. Belinus froze in front of the corpse and stared into the leathery bearded face of Hermes. The sound of the teenager's thumping heart filled the chamber. Resting in Hermes' lap was a green-colored tablet that glowed eerily in the dim light. The dead man's stiff fingers clutched it tightly, and the boy stepped forward and touched the tablet's smooth, protruding letters. Still marveling at the object's precision and beauty, Belina stumbled over a pile of books lying at the man's feet. In the stack were four books, written by Hermes, and he carefully picked up and opened each one. The first three books contained advanced instruction in mathematics and astronomy. The last book carried the inscription, This is the secret of the creation and the knowledge of the causes of all things. That fourth book elaborated on the meaning of the Emerald Tablet, which revealed a hidden relationship between man and the universe. The fourth book, Bellinus wrote later, is the noblest of all and contains powerful and terrible signs that teach the first elements of the visible things created by God so that he who reads this book may, if he chooses, be successful in realizing such wonders. Belinus went back to the cave many times and studied the books of Hermes with an open heart. It soon dawned on him that all living things were part of the same universal life force described in the mysterious tablet and he pledged never to harm any potential vehicle of light. He immediately renounced eat the eating of meat or the ritual sacrificing of animals and refused to use animal products or even wear leather goods. He started wearing only linen garments and shoes made of tree bark. What is more, he gradually acquired the amazing ability to understand the chirping of birds and other animal sounds, and indeed to speak all human languages without having learned them. He understood people's silence as well and seemed to know the innermost thoughts of any person he met. Realizing that the transcendent truths revealed in the wondrous tablet and in the fourth book were beyond the grasp of reason, Beyond mere words, Belinus took a vow of silence. The enlightened youth wanted to make sure his initiation was complete before he went out into the world, while at the same time demonstrating to others that there existed a higher level of understanding achieved through silence. He attempted to communicate only through gestures the expression of his eyes and projected feelings. Though many ridiculed and made fun of him, he would not speak a word for the next five years. We should make use in relation to the divine being solely of the higher speech, he explained later, and I mean that which issues not by the lips. From the noblest of beings, we must ask for blessings by the noblest faculty we possess 
and that faculty is mind, which needs no organ. Bellinus returned to A.G. and lived in the temple of Asclepius, as Silipheus, the Greek god of healing, who was an alleged son of Hermes. The caduceus or staff of Hermes was displayed on the outside of the temple and it was inside the great hall of Bellinus applied the principal temple of the emerald tablet. He soon gained a reputation as a great healer and holy man and the sick and infirm journeyed from throughout Greece to experience the youth's uncanny power to heal through his presence alone. Bellinus's fame grew so much that saying that a saying about him became a proverb in Cappadocia. Where are you hurrying? People would ask anyone in a rush. Are you off to see the youth? To those who had the good fortune to witness the healings and casting out of demons, it seemed as if Bellinus concentrated on purifying the patients themselves in order to force illness or unwelcome spirits to take flight. On several occasions, his, silence, his silent purifying presence even quelled riots. Once, his mere appearance at a violent confrontation between the Cilids, the cities of Pamphylia and Sicilia, diffused the situation in a matter of minutes. At the age of 20, Bellinus received a considerable inheritance on the death of his father. His mother had died years before, so he gave his share of the inheritance to his brother. Bellinus felt he must remain free from worldly attachments and would never accept or even carry money. Later, when admirers offered him huge sums of cash, he insisted they give it to the poor. For him, the most detestable of all crimes was to take money for invoking or giving instruction about the higher powers which the Emerald Tablet had shown him how to control. When he was 21, Bellinus decided it was time to go out into the world and spread the doctrine of initiation he had learned from Hermes. After his five years of silence, he declared, the whole earth is mine and it is given me to travel through it. With those words, Bellinus began a trek that made him one of the greatest travelers of his time. Historians recorded his presence throughout Greece, Persia, and Egypt. He traveled through North Africa, into Spain and Europe, and even journeyed to India. During his travels, Bellinus sought out many small religious groups, such as the essence and therapeutes and taught them the true nature of spiritual initiation. He felt that religious groups tended to lose sight of their connection with the powers above and he tried to reestablish that vital link. He was especially troubled by the tendency of organized religions to become materialistic and to set an example for others he never entered a temple or church without uttering the prayer, Grant, O gods, that I may have little and feel the need of nothing. In the sanctuaries of those various sects, Bellinus left behind metal or gemstone talismans charged with his own spiritual energy. In doing so, he hoped to physically restore the active living force necessary for spiritual health of the groups. Though he had a very cosmopolitan view of religion and never favored one group over another, it is known that the larger cults and traditional temple in cities, he persistently tried to change the ceremonies and liturgy 
liturgy, excuse me, to reflect the ancient mystical tradition handed down by Hermes. That hermetic tradition emphasized the existence of a supreme force called the One Thing, which has no perceptible form until it is grounded or expressed in material reality. The expression of that force is guided by the One Mind, the One Mind of the Supreme Being, and is a process responsible for the creation of the universe. The Hermeticists saw the one thing as a primordial, primordial plastic energy that takes form of the idea or thought projected by the one mind. The unseen force can be contacted and controlled by mankind through divine union, a merging with the one mind in meditation and prayer. Lasting union can only occur through a transformation of the body and mind until the terrestrial man is so refined and purified that he becomes a vehicle solely for this force. Religious leaders throughout the ages were in contact with this power, though they stated their personal perspectives or creeds in many different ways. Bellinus taught that just as the one thing exists in the universe, so it is mirrored within each of us. That immortal presence, the part of matter known as soul, evolves through many reincarnations as it seeks perfect expression. And man is only a temporary carrier of something with a greater purpose. In other words, the one thing is the big picture, not the individual who was born and dies. Trying to explain this cycle of birth and rebirth, Bellina said, when the body is exhausted, the soul soars to the space above, full of contempt for the harsh, unhappy slavery it has suffered. But really, what are these things to you? You will know when you are no more. It is a way of everything here in the world below that when it is filled out with matter, it is visible, but it is invisible. Owing to its subtlety, when it is rid of matter. Then why is false notion, why then why this false notion of birth and death? Why has this false notion remained so long without being refuted? Some foolishly believe that what has happened through them, they have themselves brought about. They are ignorant that the individual is brought to birth through his parents, not by them. The real change which comes to an individual is not caused by his visible surroundings, but rather is a change in the one thing which is in every man. Thus, the only way to change our true situation, to be set free from the endless cycle of birth and rebirth, is to identify with our immortal essence the one thing instead of concentrating on transitory illusions like material possessions, wealth, appearance, fame, or power over others. Moreover, the one thing within us as the one mind within us and the one mind of the universe become the same meditation. Through these correspondences between the above and the below, mankind can know and live in absolute truth. That was the message of the Emerald Tablet. Wherever he went, 
Bellinas followed a strict regimen to maintain his contact with those hidden realities. His only clock was the sun, and his spiritual practices coincided with the operation of the sun, which for the followers of Hermes symbolized the ultimate supreme being, the perfect union of the one mind and the one thing. Bellinas believed that the higher powers were most accessible in the hour before dawn, during which time he entered his deepest meditation. Every morning, he was there to greet the sun and absorb its energies. On the physical level, the sun represented the all power within his own body. On the spiritual level, the light of the sun was a manifestation of the one mind, and he attempted to unite his own consciousness with it. Later in the morning, Bellinas practiced the seven-stepped initiation prescribed by the Emerald Tablet. At temples and shrines, he would use this time to instruct the priests in the Hermetic Mysteries. At noon, when the sun shone directly overhead, he meditated again to store up the mutable force and maintain his connection to the one mind. He spent his afternoons working with the general public, healing with the energy he had accumulated and discussing the hidden truths of which everyone should be aware. At sunset, he meditated once again to review the day's events from the highest perspective he could obtain and to crystallize their truths within him. He spent his evenings distilling the wisdom of the day, making of it a sort of permanent state of inspiration. Since he ascribed immense importance to the power of imagination and self-development, Bellinas probably used his time to enter into an introspective conversation with his own soul in order to refine his deepest, excuse me, his deepest essence, a process the alchemists who called themselves the sons of Hermes would later describe as the creation, the philosopher's stone. Not surprisingly, when Bellinas journeyed to India, he appreciated the emphasis the Brahmins placed on the practice of meditation. One of the first Greeks ever to go to India, Bellinus had to adapt to the new customs and diet, contend with roaming bands of thieves, and learn about animals and plants completely unknown in the Western world. His followers tried hard to dissuade him from making the trip, and most abandoned him after he left. I must go, he explained, whithersoever wisdom and my inner self may lead me. India gave Bellinas new hope for the world. I saw men living on the earth and yet not on it. He recalled, defended on all sides, yet without fortifications, possessing nothing, having everything. In your in a letter to one of his Indian hosts, he wrote, By sharing with me your wisdom, you have given me power to travel through heaven. These things will I bring back to the mind of the Greeks, and I will hold converse with you as though you were present. After Bellinus returned from India, he traveled from town to town and spoke in the marketplaces and from the steps of temples. He attacked people's laziness and overindulgence, pleading with them to share their possessions with those in need. What else then have we to do, he cajoled, but shut ourselves up at home like birds to be fattened for use and indulge our appetites in darkness till we burst with fat? He also urged his audiences to stop wasting their time following Roman sporting events. Cruelty was a big part of the entertainment industry of the Romans, and it demanded the wholesale slaughter of thousands of humans and animals. 
On just the opening day of the Roman Games, 9,000 animals, including lions, tigers, and panthers, were massacred. The barbaric display attracted all tiers of Roman society, and Bellina stood alone in condemning it. Instead of seeking ever more spectacular entertainment, he told people, they should concentrate instead on raising their consciousness to a higher level so they might experience truth directly, for nothing is more exciting than the ongoing process of creation. When he arrived in Athens to be initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries, Bellinus received an overwhelmingly enthusiastic reception by the people. So great has his reputation become that the Hierophant who led the ceremonies became jealous and refused to initiate Bellinus, accusing him of being a sorcerer. The crowd was so upset that the Hierophant recanted about Bellinus and decided that he declined to participate under those conditions. Though he wanted to gain access to all mystical ceremonies, to understand their underlying philosophies, he postponed the Eleusian initiation and even prophesied the name of the Hierophant who would initiate him four years later. Bellinus also used his growing influence on the rulers of the Roman Empire to show them the emptiness of a strictly political viewpoint. Emperor Vespasian, Emperor Titus, and Empress Nerva all received his counsel and became known for their enlightened regimes. When Emperor Vespasian asked him what a good king should do, Bellinus told him, count not wealth which is stored up in a way that, in what way is this superior to sand haphazardly heaped? Nor count that which comes from men who suffer beneath taxations, heavy weight, for gold that comes from tears is base and blackened. You'll use wealth best of any king if you supply the needs of those in want to make and make their wealth some secure for those who have it. And be fearful of the power to do whatever you please. Do not lop off the ears of corn that show beyond the rest and raise their heads but rather weed their disaffection out like tears from corn and show your fear of stirrers up, of strife, not in punishment, but in saying that you will submit yourself to the law. While Bellinus freely offered sound advice, he never hesitated to attack decadent rulers. rulers. He fearlessly maligned Emperor Nero, who in turn charged him with high treason. However, at the trial, the charges against Bellinus miraculously disappeared from the parchment as it was unrolled, and the tribunal was forced to release him. Later, Nero expelled him and all philosophers from Rome, but the relentless Bellinus fled to Spain where he helped plan a revolt that toppled the despot. Emperor Dominion, in another reign of terror, arrested Bellinus on trumped-up charges and put him in chains in a dungeon. The 70-year-old man miraculously slipped out of his restraints and began instructing his fellow prisoners in the art of meditative union that he learned from the Emerald Tablet an art which he promised would open the door to complete freedom. Piqued by the audacious philosopher, Emperor Dominion promptly set up a kangaroo court in which the emperor himself was the only judge. And then the room was packed with influential citizens there to see the holy man punished. Bellinus entered very calmly and slowly descended into a meditative state that swept over everyone present. Emperor 
Emperor Domitian became very confused and in an entranced voice actually acquitted Bellinus. At that very moment, the room or the grounds, at that very moment, the accused vanished from the courtroom. No one saw him leave the room or the grounds and a close friend swore that Bellinus had spent the entire day with him and with him in Putioli, nearly three days ride from Rome. The ability of Bellinus to be in two places at once was common knowledge among his closest associates. At such times, he would wrap himself in a woolen blanket and assume a sitting position with both feet on the blanket. Then, as his meditation progressed, he slowly drew the heavy blanket over his head and face. He remained in that state for many hours at a time, presumably projecting his astral body to travel elsewhere. The impure woolen blanket, his one exception to the use of animal products, possibly aided in driving his soul from his body. Justice for Emperor Domitian came years afterwards when assassins paid by his wife stabbed him to death at their palace in Rome. At the same moment, Bellinus, in the middle of giving a speech at Ephesus in Ionia, suddenly stepped back on the platform and cried out, Strike! 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 It is done. The tyrant is no more. Regaining his composure, Bellinus explained to his audience that he had experienced a vision of the emperor's death as it occurred. Because of his mystical powers and great learning, Bellinus became known as Apollonius of Tyana after the Greek sun god Apollo, bringer of enlightenment. Shrines and memorials to him spread throughout the Roman Empire at his birthplace on the site where he found the tablet. The citizens erected a great temple to him, yet the ascetic sage insisted no one worship him and forbade his followers to set up any organizations. He preferred to be viewed not as a divine incarnation, but as an example of how any man could share in the ever-present force described in the Emerald Tablet. His preference was simply to be known as the Tyenian, in deference to the city where his revelations took place. He denied being a soothsayer or prophet and condemned anyone who allied themselves with the hidden powers to perform magic. In his books and at public gatherings, he taught detachment from worldly affairs, purity of thought and action, tolerance of all life, and the existence of one supreme God above all gods. He urged people to look inward and held that the emperor of man lies not in the knowledge of things without, but in the perfection of the soul within. His primary message was that union with God, the one mind of the whole universe, is possible for each of us. That one mind is the same for everyone and can be found in meditation. In 98 CE, as Bellinus lay dying, he told a close friend, whenever you think on high matters in solitary meditation, you will find me. For a man who owned nothing, it seems strange that Bellinus left behind a will. Instead of a list of material possessions, though, it contained a summary of the tenets of the Emerald Tablet, which he felt was his true legacy to the world. The actual circumstances surrounding his death were even more suspicious, mysterious. His followers insisted that his body rose physically to heaven and no trace of his corpse was ever found. Alchemists in later centuries interpreted this to mean Bellinus transformed into the Philosopher's Stone, the ultimate merging of mind and matter. 
the perfect fusion of the one mind and the one thing. On the other hand, a few historians have surmised that his disciples stole the body and entombed him in a secret cave, perhaps with the emerald tablet in his arms, just as he had found it clutched by Hermes. Maybe that is where the tablet sits today, waiting for the next initiate to absorb its wondrous message. However, the lore of the emerald tablet goes back even further than Bellinus, and the Tyenian genius was not the first to discover the miraculous object in the arms of Hermes and pass its teachings down to succeeding generations.